this Parsha podcast and indeed this entire month of Parsha podcast hosting is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas, Miriam Batavram and Yaakov Ben Yosef. May their souls be elevated in heaven. And as always, my address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. What you will learn today will be simultaneously terrifying and reassuring. And perhaps we can say it'll be reassuring for some people and terrifying for others. Now, how is that possible? Listen and you will understand. This week is Parsha's Vayikra, and it's a very difficult Parsha to understand. After all, it's all about sacrifices. And we have not done sacrifices in nearly 2,000 years. So it's a very strange concept. It's a very foreign concept. It's a concept that doesn't sound very modern. It doesn't sound like something that we would go back to in a quote-unquote progressive society. But that is the subject of our Parsha. In fact, that's basically the sole subject of our Parsha. We read about all the different kinds of elevation sacrifices from the cattle, from the sheep, from the bird, six different types of flower offerings or meal offerings, all kinds of peace offerings and all kinds of atonement offerings. And that's why it's always a hard Parsha for us to try to probe and understand what the lesson is for us, given that we don't have a temple and we don't offer sacrifices. Of course, we hope for the restoration of the temple. And we know that prayers are also symbolic of sacrifices. But nevertheless, it's a hard parsha for us to understand. I wanted to suggest maybe an idea that we could pull out from our parsha. And it's really a theme that is strung throughout the whole parsha. It's a theme that also has a very important lesson. And that is the subject of income inequality. Because it's really interesting when you look at all the sacrifices and you see how many sacrifices have carve-outs to allow the poorer people to afford to offer them. So, for example, we have the Ola, the elevation offering. You want to bring an Ola. It's a voluntary sacrifice. You want to bring it? Well, what animal are you bringing as a sacrifice? It could be a 1,500-pound bull that probably costs, I don't know, thousands of dollars. You could get a goat or a sheep. Maybe that's 200 pounds. It's much more affordable. But if you're poor, you could bring a cheap turtle dove or a pigeon. And it doesn't even have to be male. And it doesn't have to even be unblemished. That is much more affordable for the average Joe, for middle and lower income Jews. So it's interesting, we have this mitzvah, but then if you're rich, you could do it like this, and if you're, I don't know, middle class, upper middle class, you could do it like that, and if you're at the bottom of the socioeconomic strata, you could even do it with a bird. And if you examine even the laws of the offerings, you see how in so many different instances, they are designed to make the poor people feel good and content about their more meager and inexpensive offerings. So, for example, we talked about the elevation, the Ola offering. So we have the three different tiers. You have the bull, and then you have the sheep or the goat, and then you have the bird. And this is the end of chapter 1 of Leviticus. 
The verse tells us, this is verse 15, the Kohen offers the bird as a sacrifice. So interestingly, maybe this is not for the faint of heart, but unlike the other sacrifices that are slaughtered with a with a knife, really, the bird, there's a process called Malika, where the Kohen severs the vital signs of the bird with his fingernail, which I found to be really interesting. In fact, in high school, I had a friend who was a Kohen who was really anticipating the rebuilding of the temple and he would never cut the nail on the thumb of his right hand, arguing that, well, if the temple's rebuilt tomorrow and someone brings a bird offering, you need to have a Kohen who's got a long fingernail to be able to do this particular process. And here I am, signing up, constricting for duty. This is maybe not, like I said, for the faint of heart. So we have this process. You bring a, you're, you're poorer. That's just a lot that you received in life. You want to bring an Ola. You could still bring an Ola. You can bring a bird. It's much more inexpensive. And then the verse tells us, this is verse 16, that the crop and the contents of the stomach of the bird are removed. And then it is brought to the Mizbech, to the altar. And Rashi tells us that there's a difference between the elevation offering of an animal, of a bull, for example, and of a bird. Because an animal, like a, like a bull, only eats what its master feeds it. And therefore, in its innards, there's only kosher or kosherly acquired food. And therefore, you take the innards and the innards are offered as a sacrifice. But a bird, always pecking around by the neighbor, there's stolen food in its innards, and if they remove the crop and the innards, that cannot be offered as a sacrifice. And finally, we read the final verse of chapter 1. The verse tells us that the priest, the Kohen, takes the wings and rips the wings, but doesn't sever it, and takes it all and puts it on the altar on top of the pyres on the fire, and it's a burnt offering, an ola, an elevation offering, that provides a pleasing odor to Hashem. Now Rashi tells us, this is the point that I wanted to bring from this, Rashi tells us that when you process the animal as a elevation offering, that's a bird, you burn it with the wings. The wings and the feathers are not removed. And Rashi tells us, wait a minute, the smell of Burning feathers is awful. No one can smell burning feathers and not gag. Why is that offered on the altar? Says Rashi, we have a poor person here. There's someone who's destitute. They're impoverished. Not only can they not bring a bull, the best kind of elevation offering, they can't even afford a sheep or a goat. And their lot in life is that all they could offer is a bird. We want them to feel really good about it. And we want to make this as substantial as possible. So we're not removing any part of this animal. Even those feathers are included. Let's make it as big as possible. Let's aggrandize this offering as much as possible. Let it appear that the altar is really full with this offering.
And again, we have this idea, even though someone's poor, even though someone's impoverished, there's going to be an emphasis to say, let's try to make them feel good about what they have to offer and let's make it look as big as possible. Let's amplify it because we want this to be a quality offering. Now, the Talmud notes in the book of Menachos, page 110a, that in the three types of elevation offerings, the big animals, the bulls, the sheep, and the goats, and even the lowly birds, in all three instances, it says a pleasing aroma to God. Says the Talmud, why does it have to repeat it? A pleasing aroma to God to tell you. Regardless if you bring something really big and expensive, or you bring something very small, or you bring something really small and inexpensive, that's not what God wants. God wants your heart. If you commit your heart to God, then God is happy with your offering. So again, we see this emphasis that the poor person who brings a more meager sacrifice is no less than the expensive and lavish offering of the wealthy. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 begins with the meal offerings, offerings of flour and oil and frankincense. And the verse begins, this is chapter 2, verse 1, V'nefesh tisakriv karbamincha. And a nefesh, a soul when it brings a carbon, an offering of a mincha, of a meal offering. So Rashi asks the question, why does it call the person who brings the meal offering, the most inexpensive of all the offerings, even cheaper than a bird, is just some flour and oil? Why does the person who brings this kind of offering, why are they called, why are they attributed as a nefesh, as a soul? Says Rashi, something really beautiful, courtesy of the Talmud. Me mincha. Who is the kind of person that offers such an inexpensive offering? It's just a meal offering. A poor person. Says the Almighty, when there is a poor person who has very little, but nevertheless commits to offer something to God, I consider it as if they offered their soul to me. I value it so much, even though in absolute terms, it's very little. It's very inexpensive. It's not very substantial compared to the other offerings of animals, much more expensive. Nevertheless, God says, this is a poor person and they care about me and they want to offer something to me. It's their soul that they're giving. That's how much I value it. And no one else has that distinction. So again, we see that the Torah is giving prominence to the impoverished. Don't think that your gift, that your offering is useless, it's unimportant. Oh no. God values it as if you have given your soul. It's a nice idea. Not to make the people who have less feel bad, to make them feel good with what they're giving. And that's the idea in our parsha. As compensation for a paltry offering relative to what other people are giving, God says to me, it's like you gave your soul when a soul brings a carbon mincha. 
There's another example of this, a few more examples actually, with meal offerings. So the Talmud tells us, the book of Menachos, page 75a, when you make a meal offering, so you have like this, this baked little bread of sorts, you crush it up into pieces. Why, say the commentaries, before you pour the oil, you have to crush it to pieces. Why? The commentaries tell us, because you want to puff it up. It's not some small, pathetic, little pancake of an offering. Oh, no. It looks more impressive. It looks much more substantial. Again, the same idea. Don't think because you're bringing something less or more inexpensive, don't think it's not worthy, it's not valuable, it's not important. And finally, we have the atonement sacrifice. The verse tells us if you do a certain kind of sin, again, this is very technical, but this is chapter 5, someone has to bring a offering, a sin offering. And the verse says, ideally, you should bring a female from the flock, a sheep, or a goat. That's verse 6 of chapter 5. But if a person does not have enough money for a sheep or a goat, well, then you could bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. And again, it's important to remember, this is not a voluntary sacrifice. This is an obligatory sacrifice. But nevertheless, there's this progressive arrangement for the lower income strata. But what if someone is so poor and destitute they can't even afford to bring birds? So then we read in verse 11, if a person can afford to bring two birds, two turtle doves or two pigeons, then they bring an aphah, a flower, and they don't put on oil, and they don't have frankincense, just some flour, and that's how they fulfill their requirement to bring a sin offering. So again, we see a theme throughout our parsha where there are these allowances made for the poor where they're told, well, you want to be a sacrifice, you're not going to be locked out because you can't afford it. There are these other tiers of offering that you could bring and it's still important. It's like you bring your soul. It's still valuable. It still provides the pleasant aroma, so to speak, for God it is still noteworthy and important. But here's the thing I want to suggest or present. There's a deep idea, courtesy of the Chafetz Chaim. The Chafetz Chaim says, what if you have an enterprising, wealthy person? And they always say that rich people don't get rich by wasting money. So you have a rich guy, and the guy has to bring a sin offering, and he doesn't want to waste all that money on an expensive animal. So he comes up with a brilliant loophole. Brilliant loophole. If a poor person could just bring some flour, and that's it, call it a day, I'll bring some flour too, and I'll fulfill my requirement, and I'll save all that money, I don't need to buy the sheep or the goat. I'll get the atonement for pennies on the dollar. So what's the law? Is this good or not? 
So the Talmud talks about it. And the Talmud says, not only does the rich person who could afford more not receive the atonement if they bring a poor person's sacrifice, but because this is a disqualified sacrifice, the person actually does a transgression by bringing an unsanctified offering to the temple. You just can't bring some animals to the temple. It has to fit into one of the categories of a sacrifice outlined in the Torah. Because this is a rich person, and a rich person cannot bring a poor person's sacrifice, therefore this is an unsanctioned sacrifice, and it's like you took a regular animal without any holiness or sanctification to it, and you brought it to the temple, so not only have you not fulfilled your obligation, there is a transgression that you have violated. Says the Chavetz Chaim, there's a deep idea here. The people that have more means, the rich, they cannot hold themselves to the same meager standards of the poor. So you have this curious arrangement where there is this identical sin done by a rich person and a poor person, and both of them have to do an atonement sacrifice But the poor person, they bring just some flour and they are forgiven. And the rich must bring an animal offering. If you bring just the flour, you are not forgiven. That's the Talmud. Says the Chavetz Chaim, this idea is a global idea. This idea, says the Chavetz Chaim, extends to other areas. So for example... Charity. Charity also follows this progressive scale. There is no flat tax in charity. We're told everyone has to give 10% of their blessing to Hashem. And therefore, if you have more blessing, you are required, like the rich person who's bringing the sacrifice, you are required to bring a gift that is commensurate to your standing. So I think there are two points, and we're going to develop this idea a little bit more. There are two points featured over here in this idea. On one hand, there is what I call the terrifying idea for the rich. The rich cannot absolve themselves with a small offering. The size of the offering has to be commensurate to the size of the blessing that they receive from the Almighty. On the flip side, the poor... They shouldn't be ashamed with the paucity of their offering. Quite the contrary, the Torah amplifies their gift, puffs it up. You take the small parts of the flour and the meal offering and you break it into pieces so it is expanded. And the Almighty says, it's like you've offered your soul to me. That is how much I cherish your offering. So this is the idea that I promised will be simultaneously terrifying and reassuring every person must figure out which camp they fall into. Are you someone that needs to do a lot more? Or are you doing your maximum and you have to feel good about what you're doing? So, of course, this is in the context of sacrifices. The Chavetz Chaim extends it to charity. 
but we're going to extend it to every area. So it's going to get better or worse depending on who you are. To me, it seems obvious that this idea is a universal idea. It's not exclusive to financial matters or to material wherewithal. It's to every part of life. Let me elaborate. Let's talk about human intelligence, human intellect. Like material wealth, it's not distributed equally. Some people are cognitively rich and some are comparably poorer. The Torah is telling us that what is expected of every person is contingent upon the blessings that they received. So different people, different things are expected of them. I would say that for someone who is cognitively wealthy, you can't get away by coasting. We've seen those kids. They don't need to do any work. And they just show up and they get straight A's. And they feel like they are on top of the world. The Torah would tell them, you are cognitively rich and you're trying to get away with an offering of the poor. And that doesn't work like that. The Almighty gave you more. The Almighty expects more of you. On the flip side, we have the intellectually weaker people. The Almighty gave them less and we don't know why God does what he does. But there is reassurance. If you do what you can, the Almighty will amplify your offering. And then it would take those proverbial meal offerings, break it up to pieces, and make it look bigger, expand and augment it. Even those feathers are there to make it look more substantial. The Almighty would consider it as if you have given your soul. Because if you give 100% and you are just curbed, you are hindered by things that are beyond your control, you have given your soul. And that offering is even greater in God's eyes. You don't need to feel like you're a second-class citizen. So we talked about material well-being, material and financial and intellectual, but I was thinking in matters of, let's say, stamina, or focus, or attention. Some people, to get their attention, it's like trying to nail jello to the wall. ADD, ADHD, all kinds of learning disabilities. Someone like that, that's where the Almighty made them. Less academic excellence is expected of them. And whatever they do do is going to be cherished and amplified by God. And the ones who have more, well, more is expected of them. What about time? Have you ever heard of the concept called time tithing? We're familiar with the idea of tithing. Torah tells us you have to give my sir one of every ten you give to God or to his representatives. That applies financially. But that also applies, did you know, with respect to your time. The great Rabbi Moshe Feinstein wrote in a letter in 1973 
just as there is a requirement to give 10% of your money to Tzedakah to charity, 10% of your time has to be gifted towards others, towards the needs of the community, the public. And therefore, I would argue that like money and every other gift, if you have more time available, if you have more free time available, more is demanded of you. With respect to time, you are wealthier and therefore more is required of you. You can't get away with what other people who are more time constricted can get away. More time, more is expected. Less time, less is demanded. You have someone who's retired and they have someone else who's juggling three jobs. How much does he might expect of these two people to spend studying Torah, for example? If you are, let's say, privileged enough to be a yeshiva student, that means that your full-time job is scholarship. You have to study. And that means that what's expected of you is 10 hours a day of study. That's what's expected of you. If you're trying to balance a very, very busy life because you're in a different stage in life, less is expected of you. And when you do what is expected of you, you get full credit. But we're thinking just how universally this principle applies. You know, if someone has more emotional capacity, you have to share those gifts with others. Some people have a tremendous ability to inspire other people, to encourage other people, to provide comfort for other people. And Lord knows that in our society today, how many people are there that are lonely, that need a pick-me-up, that need some love, that need some companionship, that need someone who cares about them. There are, of course, pandemics that we are aware of, but there are also pandemics that we're not aware of. And one of the biggest, maybe epidemics is a better word, is people are just lonely. How many people are living today by themselves? You know, 50, 100 years ago, people got married much younger. And more people got married. And more people had a sense of community. They went to their rotary clubs or whatever, neighborhood barbecues. A lot of people today are living on little islands by themselves. It's a requirement of us, relative to how much we're able to do this, to help people in need, to help them and be a friend for them and be someone who they can rely upon and take care of them and notice when they're going through an episode of sorts. That is a requirement of us. And the more we have, the more is expected of us. I want to give my my own little take on this idea. Maybe we could expand it a little bit. You know, humanity, we are the species with the most diversity. Really, in every area of life, such widespread wholly unequal distribution of abilities and gifts. You don't find that broad range, that broad distribution 
really in any other species. And the secret why is because there is no such a thing as a human species. Each one of us is completely unique. Each one of us is a one-of-one species. There's one-of-a-kind, and there are other humans that are similar, but we believe that every individual is completely unique. As they just tell us, Ha'adam, man, olam, katan. Man is a small world. And the way this has been explained, it's been explained in a variety of different ways. Some suggest that this is telling us that man is like a microcosm of the world. The world is a macrocosm of man. Everything that exists in man exists on a larger scale in the world, and everything that exists in the world exists on a more small scale within man. But there's another way that this has been interpreted, and that is that every person is completely unique, unlike the other animals that are much more fungible. You take a squirrel and you take another squirrel, and they're basically the same thing. Fungible, you can exchange one for the other, and you probably won't even know the difference. Every person is its own species, its own little world, completely unique, a once-in-history phenomenon. Never in history has been someone like you, and never in the future will there be someone who is identical to you. Everyone is their own world. Everyone's their own species. And the reason, just the Kabbalistic reason behind this, and this is a subject we've spoken about, or we've danced around in the past, we believe, as they just tell us, that Adam was this coalescence of all of us. And we're all little pieces of Adam. And the test, so to speak, of Adam was distributed to all of us. And that idea has widespread implications. If each one of us is a part of Adam, well, just like in one body, every part of the body has a different role, has different qualities, has different abilities, there's going to be a broad distribution of skills, abilities, and of course, of shortcomings amongst all the different species of this thing we call human. We believe that every individual has their own mission in life. And of course, there's this general idea of what we call the 613 mitzvot that's universal across the board. Every Jew is obligated by these 613 mitzvot. And there's no one who could say, you know what? This mitzvah is not for me. This is not included in my mission. But beyond the universal 613 for all of us, we believe that each one of us as an individual, we have our own mission that is completely unique to us. If you think about it, why would the Almighty create us with such diversity Everyone being so different if we all had the same mission. If everyone had the same mission and there was no individualized mission, then we would not be so individualized 
entities. You wouldn't have these billions of different species cohabiting on this planet. So there is, of course, the universal requirement of every individual to uphold and adhere to the Sitch 13. But there's also a specific, unique mission that is yours and yours alone, and only you ought to do it, and only you can do it, and you have the exact tailored mix of the history and the qualities of a given person and the strengths and the weaknesses that every person is identified by. That mission has your fingerprints on it, yours and no one else's. And in that world, you are the only human. And in that respect, there's no such thing as a human species. So again, the way I like to think about this is like a human body. We don't think of the human body as just, you know, these fungible parts. Oh, I'm missing a leg. Oh, here's a spare arm. It doesn't work like that. Every part of the body, every limb and organ has a different job, a different role to play. And the distribution of abilities, and of course, responsibilities, are very unequal. So I like to think about the liver, for example. Not just because chopped liver is so tasty. Of course, we're about chopped liver. We're talking about chicken or beef liver. Not the organ in our body, the liver. But if you think about the liver, what I've read is that the scientists have identified more than 500 different functions that the liver does. And you think about the liver really carrying its weight in the body, doing all these functions. You don't have a a liver, you're dead. You're dead by noon. And the liver must be saying, why do I have all these responsibilities? Why is it all my shoulders? And then you contrast that with the extensor digiti minimi. Do you know what that is? You don't know what that is. Well, I googled it today. And according to Physiopedia, which is like Wikipedia for physiotherapy, the extensor digiti minimi, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is a long, slender, skeletal muscle situated in the posterior compartment of the forearm. Now, why is this pertinent? Because in the famous sculpture of Moses by Michelangelo, yes, that same one in which Moshe is depicted as having horns, another example of poor Christian translation of scripture, they read Exodus 34, Quran or Panav, which of course we know means that Moshe's face was illuminated and he had to put on a mask, and they misread it as his face was horned, because the word karen means a horn, Quran means bright, illuminating light. They conflated Quran and karen, but the egregious ignorance of scripture aside, the sculpture is renowned for its detail, and in particular, the contraction of the extensor digiti minimi, which is this small little muscle that's only extended when the fingers are flexed in a particular way. And in the sculpture, in the sculpture, the, the pinky is lifted 
And Michelangelo actually, you know, by examining all the cadavers like he did, he knew exactly that that particular muscle has to be extended. This is a long way of saying we have the liver on one side and we have this muscle that most people aren't even aware that they even have it. And who's doing the heavy lifting to make sure that the body actually lives and exists and flourishes and has continuity? Who is carrying more weight? Who is doing the heavy lifting? That's the message here. Responsibilities are not evenly distributed because the abilities are not. And why exactly every person has a given responsibility, the only way to answer that is if you're able to identify the root of a person's soul in Adam. And that's not something, needless to say, that any of us can do. So we don't know why one person is given more responsibility that's maybe smaller, more meager, and the other person is given a bigger responsibility and therefore is given more tools to execute upon that mission. We don't know why, but we're told an idea, and this is again a theme from our Parsha. If you are rich in whatever domain, that is a sign that the Almighty has given you more tools, more weapons, more implements at your disposal to accomplish what you must do in this world. And therefore, you are required to do more. And if you want to be clever and say, oh, I'll give a cheaper sin offering, doesn't work because you are not doing what they might expect of you. Conversely, if it is your lot in life, to be like that small little muscle and you are just doing something which is really almost tangential to the general mission. You don't see how it's important. And maybe other people could ridicule and mock you and and say, well, that can be overlooked. That's a big mistake because everyone is needed. And if you do something really small, my says, I'm going to amplify it. I'm going to add those feathers and I'm going to crumble it up so it looks even puffier and bigger. And I'm going to declare that, you know what? For someone who does very little, it might even be harder for them to do it. And therefore, it's like they gave their soul over to me because everyone needs to do the most with the gifts they were given. The great altar of Kelm one of the three primary students of Rabbi Israel Salanter, he used to explain with a beautiful analogy, suppose you have a very large and sumptuous-looking loaf of bread. But part of it was chipped off. It's not a complete loaf of bread, but it's big and it's puffy and it looks really delicious. And that is one loaf of bread on your table. And you have a small, scrawny, kind of pathetic looking, it didn't rise enough, little lump of bread. But that one is complete. And you are making a mozi, you're going to make a blessing. Which of these two loaves do you make the blessing on? One that is clearly superior in every possible way, but not complete. And the other one is inferior in every possible way, but it is complete. 
And the law tells us that the blessing is conferred upon the loaf of bread that is complete. What is the analogy? The analogy is some people are given a tremendous amount of ability. And because we can't get into other people's minds, it's hard for us to even fathom the vast inequality that exists amongst different people. We only know our own little world. We only see the world through our own colored lenses. Some people have these huge, sumptuous loaves. But it's their job to make it complete. And it's only made complete when they do everything that's expected of them in their mission. And they don't say, you know what? I'm just going to do what's average for everyone else. I'm going to find out what's the minimum requirement for other people and that'll be good enough for me. Oh, no. If you are someone in that kind of paradigm, you are granted great gifts and great riches and wealth in whatever area, more is expected of you. And if you do less, you're incomplete. You're not as good as the person who offers their soul. And yes, it's a little scrawny, and it's not as tantalizing and as exciting and alluring, but it's complete because they've given all they've got. Someone like that, that is where you make the blessing on because that's where you truly celebrate. You celebrate what you actually completed. Let us end with the exquisite insight on this week's Parsha. Our parasha begins with the word Vayikra, and he summoned, God summoned Moshe. Now, if you look at the Torah scroll, the Aleph, which is the final letter of the word Vayikra, is a little small. We know that in the Torah, there are some letters that are big and some that are small. The first letter of the Torah, for example, Bereshis, the Bays of Bereshis, is enlarged. The Aleph of Ayikra is minimized, small. Why is the Aleph of Ayikra small? So the most famous answer to this question is featured in the Balaturim. The Balaturim tells us, the Balaturim tells us that the greatest of the Gentile prophets was Bilam, and when God appeared to Bilam, he appeared to him with the term Vayikar, which is Vayikra minus the Aleph. And Moshe, in his humility, Moshe said, don't don't say Vayikra and he summoned, God summoned me. Say Vayikar, which means that God just appeared to the prophet. Just like you appeared to Bilam and it seems kind of random and there was no appointment and Bilam wasn't summoned. It appeared to him, so to speak, in a very impure fashion and it wasn't done as a steady relationship do the same to me asks Moshe and God tells Moshe no no right Vayikra and he called you he summoned you God wants a relationship with you so Moshe is caught between his humility and the divine instruction his humility tells him right Vayikar no better than Bilam and God tells him right Vayikra so he made a compromise. He wrote Vayikar with big letters. And the Aleph that makes Vayikar into Vayikra 
He made small. That's the Balatuim. Now, incidentally, in the great work of Kabbalah, the Megala Mukos, he wrote a thousand different interpretations for the Aleph Zeira, for the small Aleph of the word Vayikra. But it's interesting, I saw something really interesting in one of the books that I was using to study the Parsha this week. He quoted the Talmud in the end of the book of Sota. And the Talmud's talking about humility and the importance of humility. And we know Moshe was the humblest of all men. And that's why Moshe became the recipient of Torah. Because Torah can only exist in a humble vessel. You make yourself small, you make yourself lowly, and just like water coalesces to the lowest point, so to Torah coalesces in a person who is most humble. So the Talmud tells us in the end of the book of Sota, it says when Rabbi Judah the prince died, leader of the Jewish people, when he died, humility ended. Humility ended with him. He was so humble. And when he passed away, that's it. No one that came subsequently can be considered humble. And the Talmud says that this was not universally accepted. Rav Yosef, one of the great sages of the Talmudic era, he says, no, no, this is a mistake. Humility even endured after Rabbi Judah the Prince died. Because after all, I'm alive today. And I exist after Rabbi Judah the Prince. And therefore, I'm living testament that humility still exists. Implying from this that if he is still alive and he is humble... You can't say that humility died with Rabbi Judah the Prince because humility still endured in Rav Yosef. And everyone asks the obvious question. Wait a minute. How can someone say, oh, I am so humble. Don't say that humility died with the death of Rabbi Judah the Prince. I'm still around. Don't you know me? Hey, Mr. Humble. I was voted most humble in my uh, class, my high school class. It seems like it's a contradiction. It seems that by claiming the mantle of humility, that in fact is proof that he is not humble. So one of the answers that the commentaries give is that, well, he was saying that because he has a yeshiva and there are students that come to study by him, the students, they're proof that humility still exists because after all, the students come to listen to me. And it must mean that there are still people around who humble themselves to study by others. I want to suggest a different answer. In light of what we said earlier, there are rich people and there are poor people and inequality exists and it has always existed amongst humanity because we're not one species. Everyone's their own species. Everyone's their own world. And that is all by design because everyone has a different job and mission to accomplish. I think that humility is not ignoring your abilities, ignoring your skills, ignoring your talents, your qualities, and the positive attributes that you have. Humility is when you know that the Almighty 
expects more of you. The Almighty expects great things out of you because the Almighty gave you all these gifts for a purpose. Think about it. If someone's very talented, who gave them that talent? Who gave them that ability? It's from God. And it's a gift from God. For the intention, for the purpose of them using that gift to accomplish what the Almighty expects of them. If God gives you a gift and you shun it, you say, it's not for me. You say, oh, I don't actually have that. It's akin to a slap in the face of God, so to speak. That's not the right approach. That's not real humility. That's fake humility. You have to accept the gifts that God gives you and use it for good. The great Rabbi Israel Salanter, the founder of the Musser movement, said the following astonishing statement. He said, I have the mind of a thousand men, and therefore I have the responsibility of a thousand men. If you are rich, if you are wealthy, if you are endowed in whatever area, you can't get away with doing less. You have to know that you were endowed with these gifts by the Almighty for a purpose. If you in faux humility, you try to say, well, I'm part of the poorer class. I don't have so many abilities, so many skills, so many talents. You are like the wealthy person trying to get away, to get off on the cheap with the inexpensive sacrifice. And not only have you not fulfilled your obligations, but you're bringing an illegitimate sacrifice to the temple. True humility is recognizing there's only one creator. And only the creator can have pride. If you are a creation of a creator, you didn't create anything. How could you possibly have pride in someone else's handiwork? We have to acknowledge and recognize and appreciate the gifts that money gives us, or better yet, the gifts that money expects us to be good stewards over, and we had better use them properly. Though this might trigger some, the Torah is telling us that we have to offer to God from each according to his ability. I thank you for listening. Have an amazing rest of your day. Have a fantastic and splendid and terrific rest of your week. And have an incredible, sensational, terrific, stupendous Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalbeatgmail.com. In addition to the Parsha podcast, there is the Jewish History Podcast, Torah 101, Mitzvah Podcast, Ethics Podcast, This Jewish Life. Some great stuff coming up on Purim next week in This Jewish Life. Give it a listen. Send me an email, rabbiwalbeatgmail.com.